Breaker. Written by Rob Aspinall. Narrated by Alastair Austin. Four. I pull my left shoulder through the door. It flies off his hinges. I run along the dark, narrow hallway into my small and tidy kitchen. I fling open the cupboard under the sink. I reach up blind for the preloaded sawn off. I tear it out of his gaffer tape fixing and bolt back out into the hallway. That won't be necessary, Charlie. A man's voice, well spoken, coming from the living room. I pause with my finger on the trigger and look to my immediate left. Mr. Murphy sits facing me in my favourite recliner chair. Right leg crossed over the left, a black 50s-style hat perched on his knee. Silver hair, tailored navy suit, an expensive overcoat and a fortune in Rolex around his wrist. Should have known it was him. Only two people call me Charlie, and one of them's Connor Murphy. Everyone else calls me Breaker. It's a historical thing. You can probably guess why. I pause with the sawn off. I notice Murphy's PA, Laura, perched in a grey trouser suit and cream raincoat on the end of my worn brown sofa. The two goons from the walkway amble in, hands by their sides, empty of weapons. I tut at them. Why don't you two clowns say something? They don't speak much English, Laura says in a light Dubliner accent. No doubt she picked the lock. She acts like she floats above it, what with her pinned-up black hair and wooden-melt face. But Laura here comes from the gutter, just like me. Oh, and she doesn't date the help. I already got the door in the face on that one. I lower my son off. Cheap labour, not like you, Mr. Murphy. Where's Colin Trev? Damn shits are in the nick. Thought they could do a bit on the side. And you know what it's like now, not many takers for protection work. They all want to be personal trainers, tans, haircuts, all that bollocks. Murphy might have upper-class delusions, but he still swears like a bastard. As the goons brush past me into the living room, I look at the damage to the latch. I shake my head. Busting my own door, that's a first. I'll have a man come fix it, Murphy says. Laura, sort it out, will you? Laura takes out her mobile and retreats to the window, speaks quiet into the handset. Come in and take a seat, Murphy says. Take a seat in my own living room. How kind of you, you Irish prick. I drop onto the sofa and rest the sawn off on my lap. Murphy sits to the right. The goons stand inside the doorway of the room. I check my watch. Somewhere to be? Murphy asks. Daughter's birthday tea. How old is Cassie now? Nineteen. University? Criminal psychology. Murphy rocks forward with laughter. She ought to be an expert already, growing up around you. He settles back into the chair. So who needs hurting? I ask. No one, Murphy says. I've got a business proposition for you. I don't like salaried work, you know that. I was thinking more of a partnership. As in? Exclusivity rights, Laura says, coming off the phone and standing arms folded in the window. What's that mean? You work on behalf of my organization, Murphy says. Just mine, no one else. These bosses... They always use this corporate lingo, the shirts, the suits, as if they can buy class off a peg. I need all of a second to think about it. Sorry, Mr. Murphy, but you know me. I'm like Switzerland. 
Rodenko runs his empire, you run yours, and I keep the peace in the middle. I don't think anyone wants another war. Murphy leans forward in my chair. Haven't you heard? They found a witness. That fat Russian fuck's going down any day now. I act dumb, as if it's news. Seems even more important the kid doesn't squawk now I think about it. The last thing I want is to be Murphy's newest fist puppy. I've done more than my fair fill of that. Murphy throws out his arms. Come on, Charlie. Look at this place. I could put you in a plush apartment, views over the city, or somewhere leafy if that's more your taste. Cassie's tuition fees can't be cheap either. I blow the air out of my cheeks. Twenty or grand a year. She works part-time, but... You know. Look, Murphy says. When Rodenko goes down, there's going to be a void, and I intend to step into it. So one way or another, you're going to be working for me. You can either dine at the table or feed off the scraps. Laura saunters across the room and checks her hair in the mirror over the electric fire. Not much call for a peacekeeper when there's only one side, she says. Think about it, Murphy says, rising to his feet and fixing his hat just so. He walks towards the living room doorway, entourage in tow. He stops, turns. You're not as young as you think, Charlie. You don't want to be one of those sad old granddads still thugging around. I put the sawn off away as they leave. I retrieve the balloon and watch them from the balcony. Murphy and his crew take off in that spotless Mercedes. Right on cue, a locksmith van parks up below. Murphy's a proper operator. Doesn't do things on the cheap like Redenko. Yeah, the man makes a damn good argument, with or without Rodenko in the picture. The problem is I'm a stubborn bastard, and I promise the Russian. Maybe after tomorrow I'll reconsider. Can't live in this shithole forever. Tomorrow me and Frogger get to that kid. We'll see if Murphy still wants me after that. 5. A pink balloon, Dad, really? What? You don't like it? Cassie sits across from me in one of those overpriced chain restaurants. Some kind of bean burger thing on her plate. The 19 balloon tied to the back of her chair. I appreciate the thought, but I'm a grown woman, she says. Mandy, Cassie's mum, pinches her cheek. Oh, you're still my baby. A point of the bean burger. I don't know how you can eat that rubbish. I don't know how you can eat an innocent creature she says, turning her nose up at my double cheeseburger. You know your dad, Mandy says. No meat, no meal. You don't think they'd strip you to the bone, given half the chance? I say. Cows are herbivores, dad. Herby what? They don't eat meat, Mandy says, shaking her head. Yeah, but they would if they did, I say. They'd eat you alive, too. At least we put a bolt in him first. Mandy, my one time long ago squeeze, sits alongside Cassie on the inside of the booth, next to a window facing a busy city street. She picks at her chicken wings with false orange nails, hair dyed half blonde, half brown, a mind elsewhere as usual. Cassie gazes out the window too. A mother may be in cloud cuckoo half the time, but not my Cass. Usually she's as sharp as a tack. Switched on and telling me all about her life at uni. Something wrong, Cass? I ask. You don't seem your chirpy self. She 
She circles a fry and a puddle of ketchup, looks up at me with those big blue eyes. Uh-oh, I know that look. I'm about to get hit with some bad news. A boyfriend, a baby, alone, all three. It's nothing, she says. I let it go and bite into my burger. Then she spits it out. When are you going to stop? Stop what? I say, mouthful of burger. Being a criminal, Mandy says. I swallow my food, look around the restaurant, glare at Mandy. Why not announce it over the PA? Mandy shrugs and gnaws on a chicken wing. Mum's right, though. When are you going to give it up? You're in your forties now. It's embarrassing. Time you got a proper career, Mandy says. What like you, handing out happy endings in the massage parlour? I've already spoken to Mum, Cassie says. She's agreed to stop doing them. And the cigs, I'm packing them in too, Mandy says, proud of herself. Mother of the pissing year. The pair of them burn holes in me. What am I supposed to do? I ask. I'm too old to do anything else. Lots of people change careers in their forties, Cassie says. I think about Murphy's offer. I put down my burger and sip on my beer. Well, now you mention it. I've been offered this, um, management position. A big organisation, pay-rise benefits apartment. Mandy laughs. You! What company, what doing? Cassie asks. I think fast, as fast as my brain will go. Project management. Mergers and acquisitions. Cassie takes a bite out of her hippie burger. The heat's off, she bought it. You mean running a gang then? She says. Bollocks. Come on, Dad, we're not stupid. Well, one of you isn't. Mandy sneers back at me. If it makes you feel better, I might have to wear a suit. It's not enough, Cassie says. You'll still be hurting people. Christ. First the veggie thing, then the protesting, now the sudden moral compass. It's ever since she started that damn uni. Tree-hugging do-gooders filling her head with lovey-dovey new-age nonsense. Cassie drops her burger. Every time I'm in a lecture... I get this image in my mind of you bashing someone's head in, breaking someone's door in, or going back to prison. I start to feel sick like a fraud. I'm there studying criminal behaviour and my dad's this mafia guy. You're ashamed of me, I ask. The thought never occurred to me. I used to tell myself you were a good guy who happened to do some bad things. But you're not a good guy, Dad. I look towards Mandy. Mandy shrugs. She's not wrong, Charlie. You had a rough start, Dad, I get it. But you're middle-aged now. Steady on, I say. Not far off, Mandy says. So much for a pleasant birthday meal. I'm letting it play over in my head a while when I know it's a young skinhead in jeans and a red sweatshirt. He's kicking up a fuss over the bill, throws a couple of notes at the slip of a young waiter and calls him a fucking knobhead. He gets up and shoulders the waiter out of the way. Swaggers off to the gents' toilets. If there's anything that grinds my gears, is a lack of manners. If there's anything that grinds them more, is some scally bastard throwing his weight around. Going for a piss, I say, dropping a fry and walking across the restaurant. I follow the guy into the gents. He lines himself up in front of a urinal. Before he can pull out his dick, I grab hold of his neck. 
I throw him backwards off his feet into an empty stall. He lands twisted on the toilet bowl. I drag him back out by his ankles, a cake of blue detergent in my spare hand scooped from a urinal. I pull his face up to mine, a hand squeezing his throat. Open your mouth, I tell him. He looks at me wide-eyed in fear, shakes his head, his lips sealed shut. Is this on my dick? He half opened. I shove the blue cake in the gap. Now close it. He bites down on the cake and gags. This place might be a rip-off, I say, but manners cost nothing. I drag him to his feet. Now piss off. He spits the cake out and bolts through the door. I rinse my hands off and follow him out. He scurries across the restaurant, humiliated, fuming. His girlfriend asking him what's wrong, their confused playschool-aged daughter in tow. Was that me when I was younger? Is the girlfriend Mandy, the young girl Cassie? I shudder at the thought, but reassure myself. It was a long time ago, and I've changed. A seven-year stretch in strange ways will do that to you. As soon as I slide back into the booth, Cassie's onto me in a flash. See, this is what I'm talking about. Eh? I just went for a piss. Mandy shakes her head. How the hell Cassie ended up smart is beyond me. She gets her looks from her mother and the balls from me, but I don't know where the class or the brains came from. In the end, I crumble. Can't fight against those guilt-trip eyes. Fine. I'll jack it in. Mandy always said I was a softy with her. Cass picks up a burger. You promise? I promise. Swear on my life. What? Hold on now. Swear on my life that you'll give it all up. No more Mr. Nasty. I'm not swearing on your life, Cass. Swear on my life, or I quit uni. You're not going to do that. I mean it, she says, staring me point blank in the eye. Shit, she does mean it. You know why? Because she's just like her old man, stubborn as bloodstains on a tennis shoe, and she knows I'm a man of my word. I sit back and sigh. Fine. Say it, Dad. Cassie, I will give it all up. I swear on your life. What will you give up? Mandy says. Be specific. Cassie raises her eyebrows, cocks her head, Mandy the same. I crumble again. I give up the violence, the crime, the whole bloody lot. Just don't you dare quit your studies. Cassie smiles. She slides her iPhone across the table, pushes a big red button on the screen. You recorded it? I ask. Now you can't take it back, she says. I pick up my burger in my right hand. I keep my left hand under the table, fingers crossed. A promise doesn't count if you've got your fingers crossed. Everyone knows that. So yeah, tonight I'm a reformed man, father of the century. But tomorrow night, I do what I do best. 6. On the top floor of the Renaissance Hotel, Detective Neil Price had a clear line of sight. He could see right across the back end of the city, where towering new developments rose out of a dirty old part of town. Detective Price's National Crime Agency unit had secured the entire top floor. He had chosen the suite himself. It was tucked away from the hustle and bustle of Deansgate and Market Street, where shoppers, drinkers and big brand advertising screens collided. It was quieter at the rear of the hotel, 
and far more private, too. With straggled hair and a hipster beard, Price didn't look much like a detective. There was, except for the off-white shirt, the black tie and the weapon holstered against his ribs. He leaned out of the window and sucked on a half-smoked cigarette. He blew a small cloud into the air. It caught and drifted on a light breeze. He surveyed the immediate area, looking for signs of activity. The surrounding buildings, the grey van parked several stories below, left and right along the windows of the hotel. No sign of anything. Team one perimeter check, he said. Team one clear, a tinny voice said in his ear. Team two, Price said. Team two clear. Team three, clear, sir. Price took a final drag on the cigarette and flicked it out of the window. He watched it spiral all the way to the ground below, a tiny orange spark as it hit the service entrance car park. He pushed the window closed and replaced the long linen drapes. It was dim inside the second bedroom of the suite. Price grabbed his dark blue barber jacket off the back of a brown velvet desk chair. He walked across the thick carpet into the living area. Briggs and Sanders sat slouched on a caramel sofa watching Jeremy Kyle on a flat screen on the wall. Shoulder holsters worn on the outside of crumpled office shirts. Price headed into the master bedroom, large with plenty of floor space, a king-size bed in the middle. Danny Platt, the witness, was a fashionable black teenager in a light grey hoodie, jeans and trainers. He sat with a blank expression, running rings around Jennings, a chubby red-faced police officer. Pause that for a second, Price said. Jennings stared at his controller. I don't know how. Here, Danny said, doing it for him. Listen, Danny, I've been called out to another location, Price said. I'll be back in a while, but you're in good hands, okay? We've got three of my best officers in the suite, an armed guard in the corridor and two more in the lobby. I've got more units watching the streets and full CCTV. The lift only goes up as far as the floor below, and we've fixed a code lock on the door to the stairs. Don't forget tactical response, Jennings said. Machine guns choppers the works, Price said, and tomorrow morning you'll have a full-armed escort to the courthouse. Jennings nudged Danny on the arm. Even the Prime Minister doesn't get this kind of attention. Price zipped up his jacket. Anyway, I'll let you get back to kicking Jenny's fat ass. I'm only six nil down, said Jennings. Still time for a comeback. Danny nodded and went back to the game. The young man didn't say much, and who could blame him? He must have been terrified. Price moved back into the living area. Back later, he said to Briggs and Sanders. You're gonna miss the pizza, Briggs said with a yawn. Always the way, Price said, stepping out of the door into the corridor. Another of his units stood guard outside, rotating with the men inside the suite. Price patted him on the arm and walked along the corridor, up to the stairwell door. He punched a code into the temporary lock fixed earlier in the day. He pushed his way through. Two flights down, he took the lift to the lobby. He acknowledged the hidden camera positioned over the doors. Price came out of the elevator. He strode across the patterned marble floor of the brown and cream-themed lobby. He made eye contact with two undercover officers. One, a man reading a paper off to the left on a lounge chair. Another, a new member of the team, young and blonde in a black business suit on an iPad. Price exited the lobby onto the busy street. A short walk later, he climbed inside his grey Mondeo pool car and pulled his mobile from his jacket. It's Price, he said. I'm leaving the hotel. Coast is clear. We're all set.
Seven. I wait, crouched in a ball in the darkness. The smell of a summer meadow. The rumble of road under wheels. Air brakes hissing, traffic beeping. Muffled voices. The chugging engine of a fixed trailer wagon. I rock back on my heels as we lurch forward again. The air around me close and warm. I light up my digital watch in the dark. The journey seems to have taken an age, but we're right on schedule. I feel the wagon stop, the brakes whining, the engine cuts. One at a time, the doors open at the back. I hear the driver activate the loading lift. Before I know it, he's wheeled the cage out and lowered it off the truck. Not that I can see shit with these white cotton bedsheets piled on top of me. All I've got is my ears and the feel of a rough ride over tarmac as the driver pushes the laundry cage inside. I hear him talking to the two cops in the grey van we know they have parked in the loading area. I can tell from their voices the fuzz don't sound concerned. They sound bored. Bored of checking every single delivery that comes into a big busy hotel like this. That's why I insisted we leave it until later in the night. Cops are like the rest of us. They get tired and sloppy. And after the umpteenth delivery they'll cast a quick eye over the paperwork and won't even bother checking the loads. I hear the wagon engine firing up, the brakes spit out some more air as it rumbles off. I hear the side doors to the hotel close, then silence. My phone lights up in my hand, a text from the driver. Clear. I unzip a trouser pocket on my overalls and took the phone away. I push the heavy folded sheets upwards and stand up out of the cage, the sheets flop onto the floor of a storage area where they park the cages. They wheel the fresh laundry in and the dirty stuff out. Frogger emerges from his cage. Without a word, we exit the room, slipping out while no one's looking, into a nearby stairwell and up four floors. I check the coast is clear and then wave Frogger on into the fourth floor corridor. Frogger takes out a keycard as I play lookout. The lock flashes green and we're in. The room is dark, the curtains drawn. I turn on the bedside lamps but otherwise keep the room dim. I reach inside the open wardrobe on the way into the room. I pull a black travel case off a chest-high shelf and drop it flat on the bed. Frogger spins out the cord on the lock and opens out the case. We reach inside and each grab a mask, both identical. The faces of old men, made of rubber, white hair and ugly, Wrinkled faces with more folds than a Japanese hand fan. We fix the masks over our faces in the mirror. We both pick out a weapon, Glock 17 handguns with silences. We load and prep, tucking them in holsters inside our blue overalls. We zip up and grab the rest of the stuff we'll need. Frogger closes and locks the case, sticks it back in the wardrobe. I walk over to the window, pull a drape aside and place the guest chair under the ledge. I step out onto a window cleaning platform, steel painted blue with two railings up to waist height. Suspended from a rail on the building roof, it's operated by an electronic winch. I power it up as Frogger climbs on. I push the lever forward and the platform judders into life. It rises slow but steady. The higher we go, the breezier it gets. The platform sways a little. I peer over the edge a long way down to the police surveillance van below. After what seems like too long, we make it to the top floor where the suite is. I hope we've got the window we need. I stop the platform. We step as soft as we can to the right. 
Frogger hands me a small black suction cup. I attach it to the window close to the frame and pull back to the left. The window opens with a quiet shush. I take out my phone and tap on the camera icon. I reverse the shot and angle it so the lens can see the room and I can see the screen. The second, smaller bedroom is clear, beside lamps left on. Just a pair of twin beds and nothing else. I withdraw my phone and nod at Frogger, my face already sticky with sweat behind the mask, nostrils filled with the pong of new rubber, the world framed by eye holes. I draw the window back another foot and a half. Slow and quiet, we climb through and drop onto the hushed carpet of the bedroom. We creep over to the half-open door. I hear a TV blaring, cops talking and yawning. I draw the door open and count down with my fingers. Three. Two. Frogger bursts into the room before I'm ready. The giddy shit can't help himself. I follow him in. A tall, grey-haired cop freezes with a slice of pizza in his mouth. Another has his weapon out on the table. I hold a gloved finger to the lips of my mask. Eyes stray towards weapons. The slice of pizza drops to the floor. But before they know what's hit them, we've got them eating carpet. While Frogger watches the two men, I move towards the front door of the suite. I pull it open. There's only one guy on duty. He's playing a fishing game on his phone. I pull my silencer barrel to the back of his skull. He tenses up. I drag him inside. Don't want anyone bursting in during the job. Sixty seconds in and he's down next to the other two. Phones, weapons and radios confiscated. Arms behind their backs. Wrists in white plastic ties. That leaves the master bedroom. I hear the sound of a video game. Footy, a man swearing, a lad laughing, the final cop of four, and the witness. I put two fingers to my eyes and point at the men on the living room floor. Frogger nods. I move across the carpet, fast. I put a hand on the door, take a breath and fling it open. I have my gun trained on the cop before he can blink. He puts down the controller. I beckon him off the bed. He's fat and slow. Fucking move! I shout. Move or I'll shoot you in the face. He hurries off the bed. I tell him to pull his gun apart. Faster, faster! I shout. He fumbles the clip from his weapon, throws it to the left, the gun to the right. I grab him by his pube-like hair as he walks over. I march him into the room fast. I kick his legs out from under him and he hits the deck face first. Frogger ties his wrists as I check my watch. Two minutes in. We've got a hurry. I double back into the master bedroom. The kid hasn't moved. The game plays on. Pause that thing, I say. The kid pauses the game. He's a wiry black teenager with a trendy haircut and a face younger than his 18 years. He wears those skinny-legged baggy-ass jeans they wear now and a pair of black trainers with white soles. I tell him to get off the bed. The kid sits there, shaking. Off the fucking bed, I shout grabbing him by the arm and yanking him onto his feet. I drag him over to the nearest wall and push him down against it. I pull out my phone and bring up some photos, shots of his mum out shopping, his younger sister coming home from school, the door of the flat they live in. Same kind of place as mine. Tomorrow you're going to change your story. It was dark. You didn't get a good look at the shooter. I say to him. I shove the gun hard in his face for good measure. Change your story. Or you know what'll happen. He nods, frantic, breathless. I look in his eyes. 
After all these years, I know when someone's going to do what I tell them. And this kid is going to do exactly what I say. He knows he's not safe now. The Rodenko can get to him no matter what the cops try. The mum and sister are icing on the cake. The added incentive. I'm about to tell him exactly what to say in court, word for word. By here, silencer shots fired in the living area of the suite. One, two. I dash out of the bedroom to find two of the cops with their brains blown out point blank. Blood all over the carpet. Two guys still alive, shaking. I look at Frogger. What the hell did you do? They made a move. No, they didn't, says the grey-haired cop. Shut your fucking face, Frogger says, pushing the gun in the back of his skull. I drag Frogger away by the arm. He shakes himself loose of me. You bloody idiot, I say, seizing him by the neck and pushing him hard against the wall. Now you're a cop killer too. You've dropped us all in this shit. Big deal, he says, pushing me off. We'll finish the other two, then the kid, no witnesses. I knew you couldn't be trusted, I say, heading back into the room. The kid sits hunched against the wall where I left him, too scared to move. I yank him to his feet and into the living area. Frogger snatches him off me, he pushes him down. On your knees, maggot. I step between them. I'll do the kid, you do the pigs. Frogger seems to approve, turning his back on me. He takes aim in the nearest cop on the floor. I hold my gun to the kid's head. He squirts out a few tears, but all credit to him. He doesn't piss or shit himself. Sorry about this, kid, I say.